Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. So we just finished the month of June. Uh, it was a very busy June in a lot of ways, but one thing, if you are a legal nerd, the end of June means the end of the Supreme Court term. It typically means that uh, there are several big cases that, that come out right at the end. So we're, we want to talk about, and that was true this year as well, there's a number of uh, big high-profile cases that were decided. So to discuss that with us, uh, we have uh, legal expert uh, Ilya Shapiro, who is the Robert Levy, yeah, he's the director of the Robert Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, uh, which is not an acronym, Cato. Uh, people, people. It's, n- nor, nor do we also run the, uh, the Southern Women's Clothing Store. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, there, there is here in Austin. I, I drive by Cato all the time and I think, wow, you know, they're, they're branching out. Right. Uh, but no, no, no. It's a it's a libertarian policy shop. Uh, so, uh, Ilya, uh, welcome to the program. Good to be on. And uh, I thought you were going to mention that you know it's, it's the beginning of July, and we're not done with the Supreme Court term. I've been a uh, a professional court watcher. I've been at Cato almost thirteen years, and we haven't had any July uh, opinions. And I think it's been over twenty years. Uh, and now, not only are we going into July, I think there might be opinions tomorrow. We don't know yet, but we're likely going to go into next week because. Like everyone else, the justices have nowhere to go this summer either. Yeah, that's so. That's a very good point. Uh, everything's kind of been uh, delayed because of because we're on quarantine, uh, and I guess the Supreme Court also also is on quarantine. But they did manage, uh, despite that, to come out with a number of high profile cases, uh, and. Uh, in no particular order, one I just want to talk about start perhaps with the most recent one, uh, which is a case out of Montana, I believe, having to do with school choice. So, what uh, can you just tell us a little bit about that case? Yeah, it's called Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. Um, this was uh, there. There was a Montana program that uh, most states now, when they implement school choice, it's not. Uh, simply vouchers uh, for various reasons. They have a program where people can donate uh, to scholarship programs and get a credit off their taxes for that donation, tax uh, deductible or tax creditable uh, donation. Uh, And then those scholarship funds uh, dole out uh, uh, scholarships to parents who apply for them and then can use that uh, funding for uh, any private school, including religious ones. And this is where the challenge came in. The uh, Montana Department of Revenue, after the state legislature created this program, uh, uh, disqualified religious schools from participation. And then on appeal, when several families said, no, we want to we want to use our funds. We have good religious schools nearby us that we want to send our kids to um, uh, the ultimately the Montana State Supreme Court said, look, we're not going to police this secular religious line that might get us afoul of other kind of jurisprudence. So we're just going to strike down the entire program altogether, send it back to the legislature. 
And from there, it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And by a vote of five to four yesterday, meaning Tuesday, we're recording this on, on Wednesday, July 1st, uh, the Supreme Court uh, told the Montana Supreme Court, no, 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 you're being too cute. Clearly, what the Montana Department of Revenue was doing was uh, discriminating against uh, the religious status of these schools. We can't have that. Uh, and therefore, um, uh, the, the Montana state constitutional provision that the uh, Montana courts were applying uh, to prevent direct aid or funding or subsidies of uh, religious institutions, uh, that uh, violates the First Amendment, uh, freedom of exercise. Because again, this is not state direct funding of schools. It's allowing tax credits so people can donate. And there's several steps removed uh, for any decision making by the state to, to fund anything religious. Uh, I thought this was an easy case. Cato filed a brief uh, talking about the nefarious motives of the so-called Blaine constitutional amendments. Justice Alito, in his concurring opinion, picked up on our brief and several others that that, that mentioned this sordid history. Uh, you know, I thought this was an easy case, but ultimately just five to four to allow this kind of uh, school choice program. And whether you characterize it as a win for uh, religious freedom or educational equality or what have you, I think it's a positive step removes pretty much the last legal obstacle to the proliferation of school choice programs. It's now just a political debate about whether to have them in any given state or municipality. Could you explain a little bit more in detail what, what a Blaine Amendment is, sort of conceptually? What What is that? Well, it's named after Senator James Blaine of Maine uh, in the 1870s, who tried to pass a federal constitutional amendment. Uh, this is a time of anti-Catholic bigotry and uh, the public schools were generally Protestant, uh, and so people uh, led by Senator Blaine uh, didn't want um, government funding of any kind or aid. These are also known as no aid provisions uh, of uh, private schools, which were all uh, almost all Catholic schools uh, at the time. And so many states adopted these amendments, uh, which go much farther than we might be familiar with the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. Uh, that uh, you can't establish a, a state religion. Uh, this goes further and, and prevents, uh, at least as most states uh, read their so-called Blaine or no aid amendments, uh, prevents uh, subsidies, support of, of any kind. And so the idea went, or at least the Montana Supreme Court uh, uh, said that even this kind of program where it's not state funding of the schools, but as I said, this three steps removed in terms of who's making choices to fund ultimately uh, provide whatever kind of funding uh, to schools. Uh, these Blaine amendments have, have prevented uh, that kind of, of thing. And it comes up a lot in school choice debates. It can come up elsewhere. For example, a case that this Espinoza ruling built on, uh, Trinity Lutheran versus Comer, a, a, a church in Missouri, uh, applied for uh, uh, funding to refurbish their playground. Uh, Missouri had a, um, they were recycling tires to, uh, you know, promote safe uh, kids' playgrounds, and the church uh, qualified for their playground, except they were disqualified for being a church. And the Supreme Court ruled seven to two in that case that, look, this is not state funding of uh, pews or Bibles or religious instruction or anything like that. This is a playground, generally uh, uh, neutral benefits. You can't do that. And so similarly here, the, the, the court said, um, if you're applying your, your Blaine Amendment in a way that uh, discriminates against religious institutions, uh, that violates the First Amendment. Yes, James Blaine, of course, famous for the line saying that the Democratic Party was the party of 
rum, Romanism, and rebellion, uh, which, of course, uh, as a Catholic, I, I would say two out of three ain't bad. Uh, uh, you know, there's a different, di- definitely a different era there. Uh, so we were just talking about Espinoza, and that's one that conservatives have been actually been pretty happy about. But there's been a, a spate of other cases uh, decided by Republican appointed uh, justices that conservatives have been very upset about. Um, uh, I think one of them was the Bostock versus Clayton County. Let's talk about that a little bit. I know that you wrote uh, a little bit about that in uh, National Review. Give us an overview of what's happening in the case and tell us a little bit maybe about the 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 approach the differences in approach for say uh, Justice Gorsuch versus Justice Kavanaugh. Right. This is uh, about the application of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prevents discrimination based on various categories in employment decisions. And the question is, uh, does the prohibition on discrimination uh, based on sex include uh, discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity? Uh, And this is actually a a, a close case. Um, It's not crazy to say that sex includes um, who you're sexually attracted to, uh, how you sexually identify, these sorts of things. They're kind of connected uh, in, in, in some way. That's ultimately how Justice Gorsuch uh, wrote up his, his analysis, uh, saying that, yes, Title VII does already include sexual orientation and, and gender identity. Uh, on the other hand, it would be crazy to think that in 1964, when the Civil Rights Act was passed, that anyone thought they were protecting uh, uh, sexual orientation. Homosexuality was considered a, a psychological disorder, and in many states, uh, homosexual activity was criminalized. Uh, transgenderism wasn't, as I wrote, wasn't even a thing, as the kids would put it these days. Um, uh, but again, uh, it's not about what any legislator had in mind. It's the meaning of the words on the page. And so you had this uh, divide about what is on the basis of sex mean or discrimination on the basis of sex mean. Uh, Gorsuch, uh, joined by Roberts and the four uh, liberals or the four Democratic appointed justices, said that, uh, well, sex includes these other things. It's all kind of inextricably uh, connected. Uh, Kavanaugh, well, actually, Alito wrote the main dissent, but I thought Kavanaugh's dissent was really even more on point and precise, uh, also being a good textualist, but saying, look, you can't take words in a vacuum and you don't just try to have a literal reading. You want to have the ordinary meaning. So it's not about, you know, whether in 1964 or for that matter in 2020, uh, whether sex uh, comprises uh, sub, is, a, is a subset of uh, other things, including sexual orientation and gender identity. It's in normal speak. When we talk about discrimination on the basis of sex, do we mean firing gay people for being gay? Uh, you know, neither in 1964 nor in 2020 would you say that firing someone because they're gay would be discrimination based on sex. It's just not the way uh, we talk. And therefore, kind of, uh, it was a very sophisticated legal analysis, sophisticated textual analysis. Um, again, I had to read the opinion several times to really figure out where I stood and and I ultimately do agree uh, with Kavanaugh. But this, again, is a textualist statutory case. It's not about constitutional rights, which is why Cato, uh, which had filed supporting the constitutional challenges to gay marriage uh, in, in Obergefell, 
the uh, uh, criminalization of, of, of gay sex in Lawrence, uh, Windsor with DOMA uh, uh, restrictions, all constitutional cases. This was a statutory one. And um, again, not a clear libertarian, I suppose, perspective on how to interpret these statutes. And, and, and ultimately, uh, I think Kavanaugh got the better of it. But we'll see what practical implications this had. A lot of people are up in arms about religious liberty claims and what have you. But I think, as we saw in Espinoza, where Gorsuch wrote the most full-throated defense of religious free exercise, I think the court is still going to be protecting religious freedoms of organizations and churches and, and what have you. We still have a, a number of those types of cases coming up uh, to be decided this and next week. Uh, but for small businesses, at the margins, whenever there's going to be uh, an adverse employment action, again, firing, not hiring, not promoting someone who happens to be gay or transgender, at the margin, you're going to see more lawsuits. Right. This actually reminds me of uh, an incident that happened in Canada uh, in the past year or two where there was uh, a transgender who, uh, uh, natural born male, um, transgender woman who demanded services at a, uh, I guess you'd say, bikini wax. And this quickly became a uh, a lawsuit. But I think in that case, they actually, the, the Canadian court held that it, it essentially for, I don't think this is the legal word, but essentially it was trolling <laughs> and that they, uh, uh, you know, that they, they actually held that the, the small business was free to, uh, de to decline services to this individual. But I like the way your uh, National Review piece ended because you basically say now it's time to kick this off to Congress. I mean, this is an interpretation of a statute, not the Constitution. But <laughs> given our political realities, do you think that Congress is actually capable of passing a statute to, you know, amending the statute to provide any clarification? Congress is unable to pass a statute renaming post offices at this point. So I don't hold out uh, much, much hope. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and well, and let me ask, so what implicate, you know, this of course was about the part of the civil rights act having to do with employment decisions. And of course, I think if you were to ask people, most people, whatever the, their views on legal interpretation, most people probably don't want to see people fired just for being gay, right, you know, from their job or whatnot. But I wonder, how does this decision impact other parts of the Civil Rights Act uh, or other provisions of federal law, like uh, in Title IX for education or other things where you could have uh, men and women's sports teams or you know, here in Texas, there were big battles a while ago about uh, bathroom usage, other things, lo locker rooms, other <laughs> things like that. Yeah, we, we just don't know. Um, there are presumably going to be lawsuits. I mean, there's a pending lawsuit challenging um, uh, the, the women's sports uh, issue even before this was decided. Uh, Title Seven, Title Nine. Uh, do allow exceptions for uh, good faith reasons when you have real reasons for having separate um, facilities, whether it's bathrooms, locker rooms, uh, sports teams, or whatever. Um, you know, is there, you know, the, uh, a court would not hold up, for example, uh, separate bathrooms for, for gay people, uh, but nobody is really proposing that. 
um, the, the transgender issue becomes complicated. Uh, but I'm not sure whether it's more complicated than it already was uh, without this kind of employment protection, because, um, well, anyway, uh, it's, 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 it's something to be litigated, uh, to be sure, because employment works in somewhat of a different way than, than it can appear in, in, in other contexts. Let me ask a question that may sound, to use the word trolling again, it may sound like this is trolling, but I think this is sort of the way, you know, if you look forward to, to legal analysis and how precedents play out, if we take the logic of, uh, you know, of the Gorsuch opinion as applied to sex, what would happen in the situation of, say, an Elizabeth Warren um, claiming a certain national origin or the case of Rachel Dolezal, I'm not, I may not be pronouncing her name correctly, but who was a white woman who was identifying as African-American. Do, do, is, there, you know, is there some concern out there? Should we be concerned that we're creating a precedent now for not only sexual identity, but also identity as race, identity as national origin. What's really interesting about this is with all of the rich jurisprudence involving race in so many different kinds of contexts, I don't think the Supreme Court has ever defined race. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's not about to say, oh, well, you can claim the benefits of race or you can claim racial discrimination if you're, you know, one sixteenth of whatever protected category. I don't think we're going to see that decision. Uh, But uh, you know, uh, uh, racial trans, uh, transracialism, uh, who knows if that ever, you know, becomes a thing more than kind of this curiosity with Rachel Dolezal or, or what have you. Um, but it's, it wouldn't be hard to imagine a situation where if, if we have a two year window where the Democrats, uh, run both houses of Congress and Joe Biden's president, that there'd be a push for reparations. And suddenly I think it'd be quite fashionable for, uh, white, people to claim to be African-American. So this case seems to stand in the way it poses a problem for how do you sort of police that? It, that, that could well be. I mean, uh, that would be, you know, that, that would take a new statute. There's not any operative reparations, mm-hmm. statute, at least not as currently read. Right, right, uh, right. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, that would be up to the congressional drafting, whether they wanted to define uh, the beneficiaries of, of reparations uh and what have you. I mean, I, I think ultimately, if there's ever that kind of bill, the reparations would come in the context of greater spending on social programs rather than just checks to anybody who's classified as, as black. But anyway, um, yeah, it does it does raise issues where it does directly come up is, you know, not as sexy a, a, an issue, but environmental regulation where, the, you know, there are pending suits about various uh, 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 carbon regulations for, for greenhouse gas emissions and climate change and all of this, uh, what is a pollutant? Because traditionally, CO2 is not considered to be a pollutant, but will courts now uh, understand that given the, the more literalist reading of, of, of sex in this case, will they transfer that sort of thing to, uh, mm. to other uh, expansive, uh, potentially broader terms in, in other statutes? Okay, so let's switch gears to talk about something less controversial, which is abortion. <laughs> uh, so another one of the cases that came out at, you know, towards the end of uh, the June part of the Supreme Court's term uh, had to do with a Louisiana law uh, that required uh, 
physicians or doctors, anyone who wanted to perform abortion, that they had to have hospital admitting privileges. Uh, and this was uh, invalidated a 5-4 decision with uh, Roberts joining the liberal justices. Uh, what is significant? I mean, there, there are a couple things about this that I think kind of pique people, but uh, what, what, what is significant about this case? Well, to be clear, Roberts did not join the four liberals on their reasoning. So Justice Breyer wrote the plurality opinion saying that the uh, costs to uh, abortion access outweigh whatever, as he put it, minuscule benefits or non-existent benefits to having these um, these regulations, which, of course, were billed as, as health and safety regulations. And there's a whole separate question that Justice Alito went into in dissent about the, the conflict of interest between the uh, abortion clinics, which, like any business, have an interest in having fewer regulations, and potentially the patients and consumers who might have a greater interest in health and safety regulations. But setting that aside, Roberts did not join any of that. He said that instead that he's only joining on the basis of stare decisis, that is, this idea that precedents should stand unless they're very clearly wrong and um, uh, the reliance interests are not significant. There's this whole, it's a, it's a prudential doctrine. It's not a constitutional one or a statutory one. Uh, and there was a case four years earlier, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt, involving a very similar, if not the same, there's some debate about how similar uh, the, the regulation was in Texas as this uh, Louisiana one. Now, what's funny about that and, and Robert's decision to uh, say that that was wrong, but he's going to keep to it, is that he dissented uh, in that earlier Whole Woman's Health Texas case. And so here we go. Not only is he holding to precedent for precedent's sake, for stare decisis sake, but this is a case in which he was already on the other side. Uh, and mind you, John Roberts had no problem overturning precedent in at least three cases that I can think of, maybe more. Um, Citizens United involved a 20-year-old First Amendment uh, campaign finance uh, precedent that was overturned. And Roberts wrote his concurring opinion specifically on how stare decisis uh, doesn't merit uh, keeping that uh, old uh, rule. Uh, the Nick case involving property rights a couple of years ago was about a 35-year-old precedent that was being overturned there. Uh, and the Janus case, uh, I think three years ago now, uh, involving workers' First Amendment rights, uh, that was a 40-year-old precedent that was overturned. So a lot of curious things going on there. And just like his vote in the case that we just talked about, Bostock, employment discrimination, just like the DACA case that we might uh, get to, where he wrote a very technical opinion involving administrative procedure, you know, Roberts ends up with a result that sort of pleases the left and, and where the other progressive justices are, but on very kind of technocratic, minimalistic ground. So, you know, some people have been criticizing John Roberts for being the next David Souter. Uh, or John Paul Stevens moving left uh, uh, after joining the court. I don't think that's right. He's still a conservative. He still was in the dissenting side of the gay marriage case, say Obergefell and many others yesterday with the Espinoza case on religious liberty and school choice. Um, nor is he like an Anthony Kennedy and sort of a moderate or a squish, some people call uh, called Kennedy. Uh, I think it's something very different is with Roberts. Roberts is trying to, in his own mind, protect the integrity of the court, not play into the narrative that it's now just five Republicans versus four Democrats. Uh, and so he's, 
you know, not so much necessarily playing the long game. I think we might be dead before that game is over. Uh, but just, uh, you know, trying in his mind to depoliticize and, 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 and legitimate the court, really. Uh, and it's frustrating because I think a lot of people think that he's making his, these decisions uh, on these kind of strategic, tactical, non-legal theory grounds rather than just calling the balls and strikes as he sees them, uh, as he promised to do uh, at his confirmation hearing 15 years ago. So the last of the cases that kind of demonstrate this tendency, perhaps, of the chief justice involved DACA, uh, which the, was enacted, I guess, or instituted by the Obama administration uh, via executive order. And then when Trump came in after a little hemming and hawing, he decided he was going to re- repeal it via executive order. Um, and I guess the upshot of the decision is you can't, maybe you could do that, but you can't really do that. <laughs> what, 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 what happened there? Right. So as you say, in 2012, uh, President Obama put in the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This is to benefit people who were brought to this country illegally as children, have kept their noses clean, are otherwise productive members of society. And my, my Cato colleagues have, have done a lot of research about how um, the, the so-called DREAMers, as they're called, after the acronym for various bills that have been proposed to normalize their status, how they're a, a huge net plus to, to America in, in various ways. But anyway, he put that in. Two years later, uh, he put in the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans and Green Card Holders. And both of these programs, uh, what they did, they weren't just giving out green cards or citizenship. Uh, even, even President Obama recognized he couldn't do that by executive fiat. What they did was first to deprioritize removal or, or deportation uh, of these classes of, of people. And nobody really quibbles with that. I mean, that that is true prosecutorial discretion that just as a uh, a, a normal criminal prosecutor will go after a murderer over a jaywalker. Similarly here, you go after uh, violent criminals and, and drug traffickers and, and human traffickers over people who the only law they're violating is being in the country uh, uh, without permission. Uh, but then the second part is what this and the related DAPA litigation uh, was all about, and that's to provide uh, uh, a, a new status, the temporary lawful presence status uh, with attendant benefits, including work authorization, uh, eligibility for Medicaid and uh, Social Security and, and, and other such things. Uh, DAPA, the 2014 program, was eventually stopped by the lower courts. And then after Justice Scalia died, uh, the Supreme Court uh, voted four to four, which means uh, keeping in place the lower court injunctions without having a presidential opinion. And so when the Trump administration decided to rescind DACA, in 2017, they, and uh, notably Attorney General Jeff Sessions, relied on the DAPA litigation uh, to say, look, this is a dubious uh, that, that a president can provide these affirmative benefits, can provide this temporary status, and so uh, I advise that this is not lawful and we should rescind it. Uh, then the Secretary of Homeland Security, or then the, the Acting Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, issued a memo uh, unwinding the policy in in various ways. And this is what ultimately John Roberts pointed to uh, when he wrote his opinion, saying that that uh, DHS memo uh, didn't explain itself well enough 
to uh, uh, to meet the requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act. The the APA uh, is in place to prevent sort of uh, arbitrary or what in legal terms called arbitrary and capricious rules by the administrative branch. The problem here is that this is an awkward fit because um, the original program, the Obama program, did not go through uh, uh, APA procedures otherwise. So in other words, it's a, it's a ratchet that Roberts has created. Uh, you can expand executive power fairly easily, but to rescind it, uh, you have to jump through all of these hoops. And now this could have been forestalled probably with better lawyering on the front end. I don't mean by the Solicitor General arguing the case before the Supreme Court or in the lower courts. Uh, but when uh, Jeff Sessions and his team and, and DHS and their lawyers were doing this, they should have explained in greater detail uh, what exactly the illegalities were. And they should have differentiated more clearly the uh, priority, the removal priority aspect from the affirmative benefits. It's just something also that Chief Justice Roberts glommed onto, recognizing, unlike the progressives, unlike the courts, the lower courts that had ruled against President Trump, um, or, or what the ACLU and others had been arguing, that there is a difference between setting enforcement priorities and these other affirmative benefits. Uh, and anyway, uh, th- that's what he you know, said, that uh, this policy was not as well uh, devised, and therefore you might try to do it again. And I do think that within 30 days of this ruling, the, the Trump administration is going to try to rescind again, although that'll be tied up in the courts. And ultimately, uh, if uh, uh, Trump loses re-election, then Biden will withdraw that and, and away we go. Otherwise, we're going to have another three years uh, uh, debating uh, DACA rescission some more. Yeah, well, well, it's always when you have a case like this where they say, well, maybe you could have done it, but uh, you needed to do it a little differently. There's always a question of if you had done it differently, would that have really been OK or would, have, would they have come up with some other problem? I, I guess there's. Yeah, this decision echoes one that that Roberts came out with a year ago in the citizenship question for the census, uh, where, again, I think the then Commerce Department lawyers uh, didn't do a good enough job on the front end explaining why they wanted to add this question, which allowed John Roberts to write an opinion uh, saying, uh, agreeing with the conservatives that, uh, yes, you could have a citizenship question, but agreeing with the uh, progressive justices that... uh, this uh, wasn't the way to, to implement it. So again, Robert's kind of tacking down the, trying to tack down the middle and issuing these very technical procedural rulings that uh, apparently in the last couple of years, at least, uh, go, go to the left more often than the right. Uh, so in addition to all these cases that we've just been discussing, there's, there's a few areas that I think conservatives and libertarians both had hoped the court would have granted cert on. And one was uh, some New Jersey justifiable need uh, regulations of guns, and also some challenges to qualified immunity. Can you talk just a little bit about uh, what the hope was, where, there, where there, the court might have acted in, in those cases? Yeah, this was uh, earlier in the day when the Bostock decision came down, uh, the Title VII decision. The court uh, decided not to take a slew of cases either on the Second Amendment to define the scope of the right further, all sorts of challenges to different regulations, and the court had not taken up a Second Amendment case uh, in over a decade. There was one on the docket this term, but ultimately after some procedural shenanigans by the city of New York, uh, that was mooted out uh, with the hope within the expectation that they would take up one of these other cases, but they did not. Uh, 
uh, presumably because the four more conservative justices weren't sure of what John Roberts would ultimately do with it. And then the other series of cases involved qualified immunity, the idea that you um, oftentimes, more often than not, uh, if uh, government officials, whether they be police, uh, public education administrators or otherwise, when they violate your constitutional rights, can you sue them and can you can you hold them liable for that? And there's this judge-made doctrine called qualified immunity that says uh, basically you can't unless there was clearly established law, meaning the exact similar type of case had had come about before finding that constitutional violation. Uh, this was this came up during the time of the protests after the George Floyd killing and uh, and all of this. And so, so it was a, a rare kind of confluence of dry Supreme Court filings and what's going on in the actual world, uh, ultimately to uh, dismay of, of a lot of people. I, I would say easily a, a popular majority. Uh, they did not take up any of these issues, uh, basically punting it to both Congress and state legislatures to tweak their own qualified immunity rules. But uh, the the commonality at the court in both of these decisions not to decide was that Justice Thomas wrote dissenting opinions from the denial of cert. He was joined by Kavanaugh on the uh, on the Second Amendment, not joined by anyone, including surprisingly not by Sotomayor on qualified immunity. Okay, so now is the time for speculation. Uh, so uh, the, my question is this. So uh, Next week, after the Supreme Court term ends, or whenever it ends, I guess, uh, but uh, let's say next week, when Justice Ginsburg announces that she is retiring, who do you think President Trump will nominate to replace her? Well, luckily, I don't get paid by how well I prognosticate either uh, Supreme Court rulings or nominations. Um, the smart money, I think, if it's the Ginsburg seat, uh, the smart money says it, it's going to be a woman, um, in which case Amy Coney Barrett of the Seventh Circuit, the longtime professor at, at Notre Dame, uh, yes. seems to be the leading contender, although there yes. are others. Uh, for example, it depends exactly when the vacancy occurs. Uh, Allison Rushing of the Fourth Circuit is a, is a young uh, female judge. She's under 40 still, uh, probably a little too green, but, but who knows, uh, has been uh, just started uh, her tenure there, not too many opinions yet. Uh, Naomi Rao on the D.C. Circuit, uh, high-profile rulings in various cases ranging from Trump subpoenas to the uh, General Flynn uh, uh, prosecution dismissal. Also, there was a bit of controversy uh, at her confirmation hearing uh, when Josh Hawley was probing whether she would protect religious liberty well enough, so maybe less likely to be appointed if it's going to uh, uh, frustrate or annoy the kind of more populist or social conservative uh, wing of the Senate, at least. Um, but those, I think, uh, would be the, the top three contenders if it's for the Ginsburg seat. If it's for Breyer, and remember, Breyer's 82 himself, uh, then you have to consider people like Amul Thapar, uh, who's on the Sixth Circuit, uh, uh, very uh, favored uh, by Mitch McConnell. In fact, he was Trump's very first nominee to the circuit courts after after the Gorsuch confirmation. Um, there are others, and, and certainly Trump said is that, it, that he's going to update his list by September 1st. He famously had that list of, of Supreme Court potentials that helped him shore up his base, uh, turn out voters, uh, providing uh, the key margins, uh, arguably, in, in those uh, 
uh, uh, swing states that, that, that won him the presidency. He's going to update that list, uh, remove some of the older Bush judges, add some of his own appointees uh, to the lower courts. Um, but uh, yeah, it'll be the, the longer we go, the, uh, the, the more the ratio skews towards the, uh, towards the Trump uh, appointees. And this is as good a time as any to mention that if you want to learn more about all those kind of processes, I have a book coming out in a couple of months in September called Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations in the Politics of America's Highest Court, available for pre-order on Amazon and everywhere where uh, you can pre-order such things. All right. Excellent. Uh, yeah. So everybody should go out and do that. And uh, I should say, in the interest of full disclosure, that, you know, I'm a, a Notre Dame Law School grad and I had uh, Amy Coney Barrett as a professor for uh, literally one day, one class period uh, for evidence. And then I ended up dropping the class, not because of not because of her, but just for scheduling reasons. So so I am biased uh, in favor of her for that for that reason among others. Okay, so uh, our guest today has been Ilya Shapiro. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Irving Cowboys.